morning. Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of Guidehouse Insights Plugged In Podcast. This is a podcast, if you're not familiar, where we do a deep dive on emerging energy topics. These include renewable energy to advanced lighting controls to self-driving cars. And I'm here with my co-host, Jake, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Jake Foose. I'm a research analyst with the Insights Transportation team. This is now my third episode as co-host, so hopefully all of the the longtime listeners now know me and are familiar with me at this point, but if not, too bad, I guess. (laughs) And I'm Edie Wilson. This is my seventh episode, and I'm a research analyst on the Guidehouse Insights Transportation team. I focus on research around powering planes, trains, and automobiles, as well as e-bikes. This week, we're speaking to Dan Power, a senior research analyst and a managing consultant on the Guidehouse Insights team about his report, Residential Distributed Energy Resources in Flexibility. If you don't know Dan and you haven't read any of his reports, He leads the research service and consulting projects for the Connected DER team. His focus includes virtual power plants, VPPs, microgrids, demand response, and non-wire alternatives. Basically, he's very plugged in. I'm sorry for that really bad joke. Um, Prior to working with Guidehouse Insights, Dan was a researcher at the Alliance to Save Energy, focusing on demand flexibility and energy efficiency policy. Before that, he was a mechanical engineer at Northrop Grumman, where he worked on microelectronics packaging design and reliability for military-grade radars. Dan has a master's in mechanical engineering from the University of Maryland. With that long bio, welcome, Dan. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. All right, Dan, I'm going to start you off because we're talking about the distributed energy resources report. We always like to do a few definitional questions to get our listeners who are less plugged in on topic. So what exactly are we talking about when we say distributed energy resources or DER, as we're probably going to call them over and over in this episode? Sure. Yeah. So uh, distributed energy resources, there's sort of two aspects to it, and they both kind of hit on distributed in, in different ways. So usually this refers to a piece of equipment that is capable of providing energy services and is connected to the lower voltage uh, distribution system. So that that's kind of the first instance of distributed. The second part is these devices, these pieces of equipment are usually located either at or very close to the end use that they're serving. So they are more distributed throughout the power grid compared to the kind of centralized system that, that we've used for, for about 100 years. So these devices can be anything from flexible loads, um, distributed generation, energy storage systems, all sorts of things. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit more. But yeah, that, that's kind of uh, how we generally define uh, a DER. Okay. And then I have another definitional question, and that's what is a virtual power plant or a VPP? Sure. Yeah. So this is a definition that I, I think is certainly kind of always a, a topic of debate, depending on, on who you ask. And that's partially because virtual power plants by are sort of inherently made up of 
a lot of different assets. They can do a lot of different things and they can also deliver all of the different services that they can provide through different participation channels. So at GuideHouse, we, we try to keep it kind of broad. We generally refer to them as uh, an aggregation of distributed energy resources that is intelligently uh, managed, controlled, and optimized such that it can provide grid services either through a wholesale market or directly to a distribution utility. So if you hear us talking about a wholesale VPP, that's kind of that first channel going through a wholesale market. If you ever hear the reference to a retail VPP, that's a virtual power plant that is providing services directly to a distribution utility. And even within there, there's a few variations on the, on the models that I think I can get into a little bit later. I think one other thing just to add on to this is the idea of flexibility. Um, it's in the title of the report. And so just as for people who maybe aren't as familiar with it, power grid flexibility refers to the grid's ability to maintain a balance between supply and demand, even as conditions change. So it makes sense. Um, historically, it's been managed by larger scale fossil fuel power plants. In the US, I think the term flexibility is not used as often as it is in other areas like Europe and Australia, even though there are lots of devices that are providing exactly that. So I guess the other last thing that we want to talk about that's just like kind of tossed around in the report, um, like people that might need to know what it is, is demand response. People might have heard of it, but might not know exactly what it is. So demand response, it's been around for a long time. I think the idea of a traditional demand response program is more of a US-based concept. And the way those work is a utility will issue a, an alert to customers, usually through email or text, letting them, asking them, letting them know and also asking them uh, to conserve energy during a certain time period. Um, usually it's about four hours and it's the following day. So if you get the call, get the text to the email on Monday, they might say tomorrow, Tuesday, between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m., going to be you know a high grid strain day, conserve your usage and the utility re rewards you with a financial incentive for every kilowatt hour below your sort of normal baseline in that period that you can serve. So when that time comes, again, historically, customers have then gone about adjusting their consumption. So manually going through and, and updating your thermostat, you know, bumping up your thermostat setting or turning your air off altogether if it's in the summer, turning lights off, unplugging appliances, you know, avoiding doing uh, energy intensive tasks like doing laundry, washing the dishes, that kind of stuff. So that, that's sort of how demand response has been used for you know many decades. It's kind of been focused on load shedding. At the end of the day, the, the goal of a demand response program is to reduce the demand for utility generated power. As DER adoption has kind of increased and technology has advanced, the idea of demand response is kind of starting to evolve. So instead of me as a customer turning off my air conditioning or bumping up my thermostat setting, I can use my, my smart thermostat to, to pre-cool my house beforehand. I'm not really seeing a difference in comfort, but I'm also not using as much electricity during that peak period. The, the other thing is as DER like energy storage systems, for example, have become more widespread, customers can, again, instead of turning off air conditioning or preconditioning, they can just power their house with their on-site energy storage system. So again, the, it's, the idea of demand response is just reducing the utility demand for power. So in the past, that's meant that the customer's consumption is altered. And now that things are kind of evolving and, and these distributed energy resources are becoming a little more common on the distribution grid, it, it means customers are turning to those to power their house instead of looking to, to pull power from the utility grid. 
the other thing that is kind of important to note is we talked a little about virtual power plants and now we're talking about demand response. Again, as demand response sort of starts to evolve and including, and it starts to include things like distributed energy resources, you know, behind the meter batteries, that kind of stuff. The idea of demand response is kind of shifting so that it's, it's no longer more of a, it's, it's no longer kind of an emergency only action. The kind of smart management of all of these resources is allowing kind of new use cases for them. So instead of just shedding load during certain times, now you're shifting load kind of continuously, you're kind of flattening peaks. We can get into that a little bit later, but just to kind of set up the the discussion for that, I just want to point out, I think the term demand response, you'll hear demand response 1.0, it's kind of evolving beyond that sort of traditional load shed program. And you kind of touched on this um, in your description of demand response programs, but I'm curious if you can hone in on how this differs from an average person's experience with the power grid traditionally, where they just like set up their account and pay and don't necessarily pay attention to usage. The, the largest difference is it, it requires customers to kind of be aware of when and how much electricity they're using. Um, that's not really something that most people in areas where the power grid is quite reliable are thinking about. You know, you sort of, as long as the grid is up and you turn your light switch on and the lights come on, that that's kind of it. Your utility bill is set to auto pay and uh, you don't really give it a second thought. So with the idea of demand response, the idea of VPPs, the idea of just in general using customer sighted devices to provide grid services, it requires the customer to be a little more engaged. And some of that is kind of mitigated through the utility or through the DER supplier, through the enrollment process. You know, some of this, they can, they can kind of, it's the same thing with how every kind of technology has sort of evolved. It's very confusing in the beginning. And then as it becomes a little more mainstream, it becomes easier to enroll in things. It becomes easier to, for the customer to understand what the expectation is. But yeah, I would say the largest difference is it requires customers to, to be a little more involved in, in the utility operations and it sort of increases the amount of, of interaction and focus or attention that a customer has to pay to an email from the utility instead of just ignoring it right away or, or kind of doing doing whatever they want. So there's a little bit of, of a customer education aspect that, that's kind of critical to, to the success of the programs because you can have a bunch of people enroll in a program, but if nobody actually takes you up on the offer when, when they send the call to take an action, then, then it's not going to be very effective. Yeah, I can kind of confirm as someone who has signed up for my utilities demand response program and has gotten the text that says, hey, make sure to curtail your usage. And let's say I totally did. Let's pretend <laughs> I was a very good customer and absolutely did it. Yep. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I kind of want to ask a question about something you mentioned that I kind of think wants definition, but also probably leads into the idea of customers getting more involved with their power usage, which is a behind the meter battery. Can you kind of give us a definition of that and how it's normally used? Sure, yeah. So behind the meter, in that instance, we're talking about your electric meter. The electric meter, you can kind of think of as the interface between you know, the utilities infrastructure and, and the customer's infrastructure. If you are, a behind the meter battery is installed behind the customer, behind the customer meter, meaning kind of under the customer's purview. So the utility generally doesn't own it. There are some instances where there are exceptions, which again, I, I'll get into a little bit later, but generally being behind the meter means it's installed at a customer's residence, or if it's a business at the business. 
and it's it's just a battery. You know, it's I think everyone hopefully knows what a battery is. It's it's capturing electricity produced at one time so that it can be used at a later time. Generally, batteries are installed for one of a few reasons. First is backup power. So in places that are susceptible to natural disasters or they just have maybe less reliable grids, customers will install a battery so that if the larger grid goes out, they can pull on the battery. It's the same reason people and businesses and, and critical facilities have backup generators. You know, it's kind of a, it's, it's the same sort of intent. It's just with a battery instead of with a, a generator. The, the second, and this is probably kind of becoming more common as states in the U.S. in particular are amending their net metering tariffs, but the customers are, who have rooftop solar are now installing batteries so that they can maximize the amount of the solar that's generated at their house that they can use. So net metering, when it's in place at the true retail rate, getting a battery doesn't really make any economic sense. In a lot of places, probably most notably California, uh, which is kind of the most recent big overhaul, as these states are kind of shifting from using the retail rate to credit excess generation to a much lower avoided cost rate, it doesn't make sense for you as a customer to install solar and just send excess back. You want to try and make sure you're using as much of it as you can. So that that's kind of the other big reason that that residential customers would, would be installing a battery. And then with these behind the meter batteries, how are they or why are they important to power grid decarbonization? I think probably kind of the most maybe apparent option or answer to that is the more solar plus storage systems that are deployed by residential customers and are connected to the distribution grid. It's just increasing the amount of distributed renewable capacity that's on there. So it basically is helping reduce the amount of base load that would be served by fossil fuel sources. And instead it's serving it by the distributed solar and storage. The other kind of big mechanism that these resources can kind of tap into to help decarbonize is when you aggregate a whole bunch of residential solar and storage systems into a residential virtual power plant, you can basically help flatten the demand curve in in regions. So what that allows you to do is you're shifting demand that would be during peak hours that normally would be served by peaker fossil fuel plants, and you're shifting it to off-peak hours so that it can be served by you know, more readily available, renewable resources. So that is things like utility scale, solar, wind, even nuclear. In doing that, you're helping, you know, the duck curve is a, is kind of the classic example in this, but you have a lot of solar production during the middle of the day, but you don't have a whole lot of demand. So a lot of that solar ends up getting curtailed with VPPs and sort of controlling that demand profile. You can shift a lot of the demand that comes online at you know, 5, 6 p.m. when people are coming home from work and, and doing all that, you can shift that into earlier in the day and you can either fill the load directly or you know, charge the batteries to then, to then meet that. So basically you're, you're kind of helping reduce the curtailment of the renewable resources so that more, more base load and peak load is, is served by these zero carbon resources. And then you're also kind of helping reduce congestion on the transmission system. So like I mentioned earlier, Distributed solar and storage, it's all located kind of much closer to the end user on the distribution grid, which means that that demand is being met by locally generated power. So it's not being sent through the transmission system. And again, that all just goes to sort of reducing the amount of curtailment, increasing the amount of large scale renewable resources that can be used to meet base load and peak load. I think a lot of times you'll hear the energy transition as like 
decarbonize, decentralize, and digitalize the kind of three Ds of, of the energy transition. And I think residential VPPs are kind of hitting on all three of those. It's sort of a distributed network of decarbonized resources. They're all controlled by this advanced software platform and is sort of accomplishing that, that same sort of uh, load relief as, as traditional resources. Yeah, and I kind of want to like ask a, a question based on something you said where a lot of these distributed energy resources and a lot of demand response is cutting down on these peak demands and the things that they have to use to activate these peaker plants, which in my base understanding is the, the higher the peak, the worse it is for the environment, the more you know emissions it has. So is there any sort of you know quantification of how much carbon you know cutting down on that peak has really saved? Yeah, so that that's one that it's really just going to vary. VPPs in general are they're flexible, so the amount of capacity that is included in them can change over time. And as the capacity changes, as the resource mix changes, the impact that it's going to have on the grid is going to change. You know, there there have been residential virtual power plants that are a couple hundred kilowatts, which is relatively small, but doing it at proper times can kind of you know, the impact it can serve can can change depending on whether it's a very sunny day. It's not a very sunny day. You know, it depends on the grid conditions, the weather conditions. But there are also uh, virtual power plants that are tens and even hundreds of megawatts, which is, you know, when you get up into the 200, 300, 400 megawatts, that's the size of an entire natural gas power plant. So the potential is there. And like I said, these things are kind of, they're flexible and fluid in nature. So it's, it's, they're going to have the impact that they're allowed to make. So depending on the regulations, depending on the grid conditions, all of that kind of goes into how much of an impact on the grid the the virtual power plant can actually have. So obviously this podcast, we love decarbonization, think it's really important. But my question is, besides decarbonization, what are the major drivers that are driving residential DER especially from the utility and market operator side. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but the, the flexibility from residential DER when it's aggregated into a virtual power plant, the, the impact it, it can have is going to be very dependent on, on the regulations that are in place. So the drivers for integrating more of that flexibility from those resources primarily related to cost. So deploying uh, residential VPPs, that can be done at a much lower cost That's because these res- these um, residential DER that are making up the VPP, they're already connected to the distribution system. You know, customers are already adopting them. They're already interconnected. The, there aren't any fuel costs. You're not burning any fuel when you tap into a solar plus storage um, aggregation. And because they're already located at or near the customers that they're serving, the kind of losses and costs associated with delivery from through the electric system are reduced. You know, you think of a traditional fossil fuel power plant and it's being generated someplace many, many miles away. And then it runs through the high voltage lines and then it drops down to the lower voltage lines and then it gets to your house. So with residential VPPs, you don't have any of that going on. So like I said, the kind of main thing is, is cost and cost to deploy the resources. The other big thing that that's becoming more of a driver, especially in the U.S., is this idea of a non-wires alternative. So the idea that basically tapping into residential resources can allow a utility to defer or altogether avoid 
the need for traditional grid infrastructure improvements. So traditionally, if there's load growth in an area, a utility will look to upgrade a substation or build another distribution line or um, upgrade a transmission line to increase the capacity, something like that. When you're tapping into these residential VPPs, you can sort of mitigate that because a lot of times this load growth only, the, the load growth is going to occur it's only going to be above the maximum rating for the traditional infrastructure, maybe a few hours in a whole year. So if you can manage a VPP in a way that you basically keep that below the threshold, then you're saving the utility, you know, the time and engineering effort it takes to go and, and build out this, you know, build out this new infrastructure. And I think we're seeing, uh, we're, we're kind of seeing those things kind of converge with obviously the, the U.S. And, and many other countries have these large, you know, climate goals that we're trying to reach with adding more renewable energy and cutting emissions and, and all of that. But we also have these huge interconnection backlogs. We also, anytime there's a utility, any kind of utility infrastructure project is going to take a, a good amount of time and effort to, to get up and running. So these unconventional solutions, these residential VPPs can sort of help uh, shoulder some of that burden in the meantime to accommodate all of this load growth that we're seeing with electrification and EVs and, and all of this stuff. The, the VPPs can kind of come in and, and help shoulder that burden at, at a much lower cost than traditional traditional infrastructure upgrades and traditional fossil fuel generation sources. One last thing just to touch on is, you know, from a driver side, the technology has advanced a lot in, in the last, you know, 10 years in the energy space, um, particularly in the uh, software realm. So the fact that these resources can now all be remotely controlled and optimized and you're communicating with them without actually communicating, you know, there's no intermediary communicator. It just makes it much, much easier to call on the capacity from these portfolios. So back in the day, like demand response programs were literally a utility picking up a phone and calling customers and saying, Hey, can you conserve usage from this time to this time tomorrow? Like we don't do that anymore. You know, you don't really need to do that. All of these residential DER are, the software that's used to manage them, they can communicate very quickly and, and it's remote and it's like the customer sometimes usually isn't even aware that their device is being used for anything. So it's just becoming a much more, I guess, attractive uh, value proposition for, for the, the grid operators who, who would be benefiting from it. I do want to move on to you. We talked about drivers for this market. I want to talk about barriers, like what's holding this back? Why aren't doesn't every household have a battery behind their meter at this point? So there's kind of two, I guess there's kind of two ways to approach that. So to answer kind of the second part of your question. So one of the biggest barriers to residential DER adoption is still cost. So upfront cost. Technology costs have come down a lot in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. But in the U.S. at least, residential solar, residential energy storage systems, these things are $10,000, $20,000 sometimes, depending on where you're going. That's a lot of money. Um, most people are not going to be able to pay for that upfront. A lot of these DER companies are starting to implement new kind of business offerings. So kind of a, a no a no money down type thing where you're you're paying a recurring you're paying on a recurring basis, sort of a lease or a power purchase agreement or some sort of long term thing. So I think from a from the customer perspective, that's kind of the the largest barrier. Um, and then obviously if customers aren't installing these devices, then grid operators aren't going to be able to pull from the capacity because they just won't be on the system. 
the to answer kind of more of the broader scope of, of flexibility from residential DER, the biggest barrier on that front is kind of antiquated market regulations and incentives and, and that kind of thing. So generally, you know, utility revenue structures are, uh, they favor high kilowatt hour sales and capital infrastructure investments. So utilities in the U.S. are allowed to invest in capital infrastructure. So that's traditional grid infrastructure, that's substations, poles and wires, um, new power plants, that kind of stuff. They invest in that, they recover the cost that it takes to construct it, plus a rate of return. So what that kind of does is any sort of unconventional solution that might come at a lower cost, they, there isn't really much of an incentive for a utility to kind of investigate that, that avenue. The other kind of part of that is the, from the wholesale perspective. So that, that first part is kind of about the utility incentives and revenue structures. So that again, is more looking at the retail VPP aspect. From a wholesale perspective um, in the US, we have, we have seven wholesale markets. Six of them are under the jurisdiction of FERC. FERC Order 2222 is one that you'll hear a lot, and that was issued about three years ago. Basically, it required those six wholesale market operators to integrate aggregated DER into their frameworks. The idea was to induce wholesale market participation from any sort of aggregated portfolio of DER. In practice, though, we're, we're kind of seeing that there are still some barriers to wholesale participation for that. So that it's going to vary by region, you know, what it, it really, I guess, without going into too much detail, it, it's sort of just the frameworks are complying with the order, but there are definitely still some challenges for certain DER, minimum size types, single node aggregations, legacy state level regulations, like demand response opt out, the whole idea behind double counting, all of these issues are kind of still in there. And so it may be a little harder for DER to participate in the wholesale market, meaning the flexibility that they can offer is going to kind of, you know, be unrealized at the wholesale level. Kind of one third point to the barrier, which sort of combines both of those previous things I was talking about is it, it, particularly in the residential segment, residential customers are installing these assets, whether it's solar storage, whatever it is, they're kind of installing it for, for them. Like they're like, I'm doing this to serve me and serve my house, which is totally fine. That makes sense. But so then if, if a third party comes along, if it's their utility and they say, Hey, you know, can we use a little of that capacity? You know, th there's a little bit of a kind of negative perception, I think, uh, towards the utility industry. And I don't think they're alone in that. I think customers generally are not as favorably, I don't know the best way to put this without like stepping on anyone's toes. Cause I certainly don't want to like piss off the whole <laughs> utility industry, but at any time, anytime there's like, you know, a monopolistic nature in, in a service that everyone needs, there's sort of less of a drive to innovate and to enhance their relationship with their customers. So, you know, utilities are kind of already coming at it from that perspective. And so if, if they go to a customer who just installed a battery and they wanted it for backup power because they are experiencing outages on their grid a lot, the utility says, Hey, can we use some of that to help balance the grid? It might be a little of the grid is your responsibility. That's, that's not my responsibility. <laughs> so th there's a little bit. And again, that all goes back to this customer education aspect of like, sometimes, you know, moving forward to realize this decentralized grid, customers are going to have to be a little more involved in some ways, not necessarily, not everyone and not all the time, but you, there might be a little bit of a learning curve of, you know, understanding how and when you're using electricity and how the grid is working and, and all of that kind of stuff. So 
yeah, I, I think the, those barriers, it's kind of customer perception, it's old regulations, and it's sort of like, you know, market framework related. It's all kind of related to economics and, and customers. Like I mentioned, VPPs are kind of, they will show the value that they're allowed to show. So if they're in a regulatory environment that's very friendly to that, they will display that and they'll show that they can deliver the same amount and the same type of grid services as large power plants, you know, at a lower cost and, and at a, a lower emissions. And then before we wrap up, will you give us a case study or two that you found particularly compelling in the residential DER space? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd like to kind of give one in each uh, realm. So the first example is going to be a retail VPP. So Green Mountain Power, they are a utility up in Vermont. Um, I was just in Vermont. I, I got back from there, so it's very, very pretty state. I don't know if you guys have ever been, but lots of green, obviously. Yeah, my sister lives up there. Oh, really? Beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Green Mountain Power started this uh, residential energy storage system pilot program back in 2016, and their goal was basically to use aggregated residential batteries to reduce the amount of electricity they needed to procure on the ISO New England market during peak periods. So the idea being, if they call on this aggregated fleet, then their demand during peak periods is going to be lower than it would have otherwise. And therefore, the amount of money they're paying to procure capacity is going to be going down. The, it was successful. Uh, they turned it into a permanent program a few years ago. There's a couple different tariff options. This is where I said the kind of regulations are going to play a huge part. So Vermont is kind of unique where the utility Greenmount Power was allowed to own and rate base assets at customer sites. So customers kind of have the option to either lease a battery through their utility or they can receive an upfront incentive and go buy their own battery in exchange for allowing Green Mountain Power to discharge the battery, you know, during certain peak periods. I, just to give you a couple numbers, as of this year, there were more than 4,000 batteries enrolled in the program and it has reduced the power costs for all Green Mountain Power customers by about $3 million per year. So since it's been in effect. Wow. It's a very popular program. They There's a cap on how many new people can join each year. The cap is full for 2023. It's actually full for next year, for 2024. And the, the list for 2025 is also growing. So I believe Green Mountain Power is looking to kind of try and lift that cap just because they've shown it can be so effective. They've shown it's very popular. The cost that they're using to own and rate base these assets is truly paying off in saving their customers all of this money. So that, like I said, that is an example of a retail VPP. That is the, the aggregated fleet of uh, residential DER is serving a distribution utility directly. And in this case, the distribution utility is also the one controlling the fleet. There's another option where a third party could, could be the one controlling the fleet and the utility would then just call on them to deliver the capacity. Um, but either way, still going directly to a utility. The next, I think, really great case study that showcases residential DER is this is going to be a wholesale VPP. So uh, Sunrun, which is a U.S.-based solar storage energy services provider, primarily for residential customers. In 2019, they won the forward capacity auction. They won a forward capacity auction for 20 megawatts in the ISO New England market. Forward capacity auction is when market operators procure capacity in advance of when they think they'll need it. So in this case, it was three years. So they won it in 2019. They had to deliver in the summer of 2022. 
what they did is they went out and they installed slash recruited 5,000 residential solar customers, residential solar and storage customers in the six states that make up ISO New England. And they basically, when ISO New England called on them to deliver the capacity, they did using those resources. So during the summer of last year, they delivered uh, about 1.8 gigawatt hours of energy back to the grid during the peak demand window. And so by doing that, it's not only relieving strain on the grid, it's also, again, like I mentioned earlier, it's reducing the amount of energy that needs to be used from fossil fuel uh, power plants because it's already on the system. It's being controlled in such a way that it's providing the same type of grid services. And it's really, I think it's a really nice example to use one because it's again a wholesale it's an example of a residential vpp successfully participating in a wholesale market in the u.s and it's also showing that there's maybe starting to be a shift from favoring centralized fossil fuel power plants to provide this capacity in the future when you're sort of like okay we think in a few years we're going to need this much capacity can we count on you and this example basically shows like yes residential der can be counted on and it worked well. Some of that money, you know, th there's a whole other economic component that we probably don't have time to talk about. But basically, when the customers who own these assets, when they are enrolled in these programs, whether it's a retail or a wholesale program, they're getting an incentive every time their device gets um, gets called on. So it's helping, number one, reduce their payback period for when they, you know, have installed that. And number two, it's it's returning money, you know, to the community that these resources are actually serving. It's not going to whoever the company is that owns the power plant. It's going to the customers who are actually living in the community where the where these resources are are being called on. So, yeah. Anyway, I think those are two really good residential VPP examples. They're both in the U.S. I realize, but what can I say? I'm that's where I am. So. <laughs> Dan, real quick, I'd be remiss if I uh, let us go without asking this question, which is, your name is Dan Power. Uh, you work in <laughs> power research. Uh, which came first here? Is it a chicken and egg situation? How'd that happen? Yeah, it's funny, actually, because my old job when I was at Northrop and, and also when I was in grad school, I worked with power electronics, which are electronics <laughs> that convert AC to DC or DC to DC or DC to AC. So I kind of got the same joke back then of like, oh, your name's power and you're working in power electronics. And yes, then then I did uh, later shift over to energy and I realized it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of convenient, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yes, can confirm my name came first and to my knowledge did not influence my career decision. Good to know. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Dan, for coming here and joining us on this podcast. Uh, if you want to learn more about all the research Dan does, his report and more are available on the Guidehouse Insights webpage. If you want to keep up to date on the Plugged In podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And so we look forward to everyone here joining us for our next conversation in October. Thank you, Guidehouse, for providing us with this platform and to keep up with the larger Guidehouse Insights work. Follow us along with our Industry Insights blog at guidehouseinsights.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. All right. Thanks for having me.